And what a, what a blessing to be able to gather together and, and to sing of our great need for a Savior. Uh, what a wonderful way to celebrate. And, and I want to kind of continue in a spirit of celebration as we begin today uh, by giving an official report and update on our uh, special giving emphasis this past Sunday. Uh, we sent an announcement through our e-newsletter and uh, some of the social media updates that we do. And so I'm, uh, I'm assuming that the majority of you have already seen this, but I'm also assuming that some of you didn't, which as a quick aside, perhaps it'd be a good opportunity to remind you that if you want to get up-to-date information for our church, uh, you can sign up for those regular newsletters. You can go to our, our website and scroll down to the bottom, and there should be a place where you can sign up to, to receive those updates. Uh, obviously, you can follow on Instagram and Facebook and some other places where you can receive those things. So make sure you do that if you want to stay informed. But uh, here is the great news. We, we went into last Sunday knowing it was the last Sunday of the fiscal year, and we had issued a challenge to the church. We, we acknowledged that there was a little bit of a deficit that we wanted to, to make up. We wanted to end the year with a, with a strong uh, approach towards our giving, and we wanted to continue to foster that spirit of giving that we've talked about uh, that is sacrificial, that is generous, and that is cheerful. And so when we issued this challenge, my own personal goal kind of internally was hoping that maybe we could get in the 50000 range, that we had done a similar emphasis last year, and that was kind of the range. We, we were a little bit above that last year, and I thought, well, if we can do that, that'll be a good start, and, and that was my hope kind of going into it, uh, but not only did we exceed that goal, uh, we more than doubled it last Sunday, and we brought in $104,592.34, so yeah, that's awesome, definitely something to celebrate, so thank you, thank you, Thank you. Uh, there's, there's really no other words to say. What an amazing display of generosity. And, and what I hope we all can see from that is the opportunity to not only continue to exercise good stewardship and, and to take care of the things that God has entrusted to us and the ministries of this church, but to continue to move into that vision that we talked about last week, that we want to be a church that is known for its generosity, generosity that is extended beyond its walls, and we become known for what we're giving away more than what we're acquiring for ourselves and, and you guys and your faithfulness to do that and demonstrate that last week uh, was beyond humbling. And so I'm grateful and very, very excited for that display of generosity. As we move into the holiday season, we're going to have continued opportunities to, to continue to practice that uh, and exercise that sort of generosity and that sort of spirit of giving. And so uh, let's, let's keep it going. But, but I hope you guys know I am so humbled and so honored to serve alongside you and to be a part of this church family. And I am eager and I'm expectant for what God is going to continue to do in us and through us. And so uh, I know we just prayed, but with that news, I feel like it's only appropriate for us to pray again uh, prayers of gratitude and praise for what he's doing in our church. So would you pray with me? Father in heaven, we do give you the praise and glory and honor uh, for, for what you deserve. And, and we pray that what we brought last week and the ways in which we released our grip on some of these earthly treasures allowed us to to exhibit a life of worship to you. And so we pray now, Father, that we would steward these gifts well, that we would, we would steward them in a way that would bring glory to your name and that would advance your kingdom and your purposes and your cause uh, in the life of this church and in the life of this community. Um, and so we just begin with that declaration of gratitude and we, we continue in that spirit of praise this morning. For it's in Jesus' precious and holy name we pray. Amen. Amen. All right, y'all, we have just really one more week. We have this Sunday and next week before we finish this series on identity that we've been walking through really since the middle of August. And the, the whole premise to this series 
has been that we believe our identity is shaped by our convictions, right? Our fixed and firm beliefs, the things that we hold tightly to shape who we are as individuals. And so we began to to make a, a journey into this premise, and we talked about how the invitation that Jesus extends to each of us really kind of sets the framework for that identity, right? He, he calls us to follow him and then says, now I'm going to go and make you fishers of people. And it's this whole uh, structure, this whole framework of being disciples who make disciples. And so our journey was to say, okay, well, what convictions uh, do we need to hold tightly to in order to pursue that? And, and how do we begin to, to live that out? And and so we looked at the convictions that we've more or less embraced and adopted as a church family, but we did so with a slightly different perspective. R- rather than looking at it from a communal and kind of a, a, a large body, congregational viewpoint, we said, how do we take these convictions and apply them to our lives personally? And, and what does it mean for me as an individual to hold tightly to these things? And so we've talked about all these different convictions we want to hold tightly to. What does it mean for our lives to be centered on the gospel? to come to Jesus in every capacity, uh, to have our lives be biblically guided, right? To see Jesus as the fulfillment of the law and the prophets, that everything flows through him and how the scriptures need to enrich and sharpen our lives. We talk about the importance of prayer and fasting and how we shouldn't pray like hypocrites, right? But in secret, we ask for not only our provision, but for the advancement of the kingdom. We talked about being discipleship focused, the, the, the responsibility that as God Uh, sends Jesus to describe and reveal this kingdom, he entrusts to us the responsibility to be light and salt that point to it, right? That that reveal it for others and how we need to embrace that responsibility of going and not being a church that is a come and see church, but a go and make church. We we have looked at worship, how we need to set free from that kind of needs-based consumeristic mentality that we would seek his kingdom first, and, and run after him, and, and everything else would be given to us, and how that cultivates a life of worship. And then obviously last week, we talked about giving, how when we see Jesus with those eyes of generosity, when we see what he's done, it helps us loosen our grip on these earthly treasures. And so hopefully all these, these convictions are helping stir, spur us on and stir us on to a greater devotion and a greater understanding of who God has called us to be. So today, we continue that journey Um, And then next week, we have one more that we'll look at before we'll have a a couple of unique Sundays before we end the month of October. And then come November, we're going to start looking at missions. And and I love that. That's a huge part of our church's identity. It's something that I'm passionate about. And we're going to look at what it means to be a missional people who serve and follow a missional God. Uh, But before we get to that, we're going to finish this series on identity. And today, we're going to talk about families being valued. Now, there's a couple of, of disclaimers that need to be made as it concerns this particular key conviction. Because of all the, the key convictions that we we're going to talk about, this is the one that, that for me personally is like, I'm trying to figure out the, the best way for it to fit in light of this series. And so a couple of things that I want to explain to you as we begin. Number one is I want to make sure we understand what we are talking about when we say family. And a lot of times uh, we as church uh, or church leaders oftentimes reduce the idea of family to, to marriage and parenting. Right? If you're married and you have children, and we alienate a lot of people and a lot of families that don't fit in those descriptions. And, and a lot of times we'll have these sermons and these series that essentially kind of turn into parenting and marriage seminars, and, and family is so much more than that. And so when you hear us talk about families being valued here, we're, we're talking about the entire family, any role that you play. And a lot of us maybe come into this discussion 
without that support system. And so maybe family is defined differently for you. It's, it's the network of people that you can call upon that you know are there for you, that love you. So, so we want everyone to feel the importance of a message like this. Regardless of your role within whatever network it is, we believe that that family is important, right? And it needs to be valued. So we're, we're, we're painting a broad brush when we talk about it uh, in terms of families being valued. The other thing that I want to acknowledge as we begin this sort of conversation is that it is a little bit of a difficult way to talk about it through the lens of identity. Because when you think about family, you, you think about more than one, right? You think about kind of a, a small expression of community. But what we're really looking at is, is how family shapes our identity, okay? Um, this is not a message that's going to talk us through the eight points of a healthy family or the five things families should do together. What we're really going to try to do is, is peel through those things and say, how does your understanding of family impact your own identity? And, and that's really kind of what we want to look at, is, is how does our identity find its purpose, or how does our identity even shape the family that we're in? That, that's going to be the route that we try to take today. And, and in addition to that, it's obviously through the lens of understanding that families need to be valued. And this is where we, we need to do a little bit of legwork and some groundwork before we get to any of the scriptures today. Uh, part of what we have to acknowledge and admit to one another is that we live in a time and we live in a context and situation where, where families are often challenged and families are often diminished as opposed to accentuated in their value, right? Families in many ways are under attack, not, not, not literally per se, maybe spiritually, maybe, maybe culturally in some capacity, but, but we see the brokenness of family all the time. And, and we see that they continue to, to decrease in value. And so let, let me just offer a couple of statistics that, that corroborate this or suggest this and verify it a little bit. This is, this is uh, some, some research that I did uh, not too long ago. I've shared it with you before, but I want to re reiterate some of these statistics that we've talked about. A lot of the sources come from Center of Disease Control, U.S. Department of Health and Human Services, uh, a lot of different uh, organizations that fall under that U.S. Department of Justice. And so here are some statistics that talk about the breakdown of family. 85% of all children that exhibit behavioral disorders come from fatherless homes. 90% of all homeless and runaway children are from fatherless homes. 71% of all high school dropouts from fatherless homes. 75% of all adolescent patients in chemical abuse centers are from fatherless homes. 63% of youth suicides, fatherless homes. 80% of rapists motivated with displaced anger come from fatherless homes. 70% of juveniles in state-operated institutions, 85% of all youth sitting in prisons grew up in fatherless homes. Over and over and over again, when we see the way in which a home is broken, it impacts somebody's understanding of their own identity. And they run into drugs. They run into anger. They run into poverty. They run into all these different things. And if we were going to seek those things out and try to help people in those situations, what we would eventually discover is some form of brokenness in their home, a breakdown of family. And it's not just fatherlessness, right? It happens across the board. We see many other problems within the home, even when the family stays intact. One out of five children suffer some form of physical or mental abuse, 10 million men and women suffer from some form of domestic abuse. One billion children around the world are victims of violence within the home. Over and over and over again, we see 
the problems that families constantly encounter. And so if we want to make a difference in these areas, if we want to combat poverty, if we want to combat anger, if we want to combat violence, what we need to do is we need to fight for the family consistently. And, and so what we can begin to see is that when the family is devalued, so is my sense of self-worth. So is my sense of identity. When, when I'm missing that sort of network, it, struggle, it creates a struggle within me to know who I am. Where do I find value? Where do I find purpose? It makes me susceptible to diminish what God has created me to do as opposed to pursue it. And so we have to acknowledge the importance of valuing families. And that's what we're going to seek to do today. And, and the whole premise here is actually going to be kind of maybe taking it in a reverse order here. That the more we understand our identity in Christ, that leads us on a trajectory to then have a positive impact on our family. Rather than letting the family brokenness define us, let Christ define us so that we can impact family brokenness. That's, that's the premise that we're going to pursue today. Now, to do that, we're going to continue through our journey through the Gospel of Matthew. So if you have your Bibles, go ahead and turn to Matthew chapter 7. Uh, we are in the Sermon on the Mount. And here was the idea initially, was to, to take on these convictions and to really just dig into the Sermon on the Mount to navigate through all these different topics. And, and as I prepared through that and looked at that, there was one particular conviction that was a little bit more difficult to fit within the Sermon on the Mount than any other, and it was this one. Uh, we do have some teaching within Jesus' Sermon on the Mount as it speaks to divorce. But the more I looked at that, I said, well, there, there's a larger picture that we need to, to paint here. There's a, there's a greater context that we need to go after. And so we are going to look at a passage from the Sermon on the Mount, but I actually want to do a little bit more work with the scriptures to, to create a context to, to what I think will give the passage a little bit more weight when we see Jesus' words. And so what I want to do is just look through the Gospel of Matthew for a moment and, and see what it is that Jesus has to say about families. As we just kind of survey through the Gospel of Matthew, what, what else does he say about families in, in those types of relationships? Now, before we do that, let me reiterate that when you look at the scriptures as a whole, even beyond the Gospels, I think we see time and time again how much God loves family, that he created it. It's his design. It's his purpose. It's his intent. We see how, how parents are supposed to pour into their children. We see how children are supposed to respect and honor those who are above them. We see how husbands and wives are supposed to come together. We see constant affirmation for the importance and the value of family. And so one of the things that I often share with folks, I say this to the staff all the time, but I share it with you all too, family is your primary ministry, right? We do not need to step over the people that we love or the people that are around us to, to serve the kingdom in other capacities, right? Your, your family is one of your primary responsibilities. You can pour through the scriptures and never really find a direct verse about what vocation you should have and what, what career you should pursue, but I guarantee you'll find what kind of child you're supposed to be, what kind of husband you're supposed to be or, or wife you're supposed to be. We'll, we'll find that. Family is your primary ministry in so many capacities. So, so hear me say that. The scriptures teach that. God values that. But when we begin to look at what Jesus has to say about it, he's going to challenge our paradigm of family. And there are some really fascinating things. Now, I'm just going to kind of summarize these, okay? Here, I'm going to look at it categorically. If you were to just turn through the pages of Matthew, you'd see a couple of things. There are moments when Jesus speaks to specific definitions of family. And, and the best example is marriage, right? We do see that in the Sermon on the Mount as he speaks to divorce. We see it again, I think, in what, Matthew 19, 
somewhere around there where he talks about the creator. He created uh, man and woman that they would come together as one flesh, right? And for this reason, they'd be joined together in what God has put together, let no one separate. So we see Jesus define what this marital relationship should look like and how it should be fought for and how it should be pursued. And so as a church, we affirm that, right? We, we can see what God intends through that relationship and how sacred it is. And so we, we fight for that as a church. We, we, we declare that in many ways, but we do so with love. We do so with generosity. We do that with, with an open heart and open spirit, right? So we can see some teachings on, on specific aspects of relationships. There's even some interesting talking in there about what's going to happen at the resurrection. Who, who am I going to be married to at the resurrection? And Jesus is like, there is no marriage at the resurrection. And so we, we see kind of the temporal nature of it versus the eternal nature of what to expect. We, we see other elements of the scriptures where Jesus redefines family as a whole. One of the most interesting exchanges is when Jesus is teaching or he's sitting with, with a group with a, of his followers and somebody comes up and says, hey, you're your mother and your brother are here to see you. And he turns to him and he says, who are my mother and my brother? Now, if that were me, like, I would have gotten up. I'm like, hey, mom, sister, what's going on? It's good to see you. You know, I mean, like, I would have excused myself. But Jesus completely disregards them even being there. And he redefines it. He says, anyone who does the will of my father, they're my mother. They're my brother. That's who I find my family relationship with. A very significant statement. So he kind of redefines even how we can perceive family and where those relationships really come from. He defines it through looking through those who do the will of the Father. Now, the majority of the teaching that you find within the Gospel of Matthew that Jesus does to, to speak to our view of family typically carries some sort of connotation that helps us reprioritize the role of family in our life. For example, sometimes it's subtle. Sometimes he extends an invitation to somebody to follow him, and the response is, well, let me first bury my father, to which Jesus says, let the dead bury the dead. That's a pretty, pretty remarkable response, because right? it's not, it's not um, un, unusual to, to want to bury and take care of your father, and yet Jesus challenges that and says, no, there's an urgency with you following me. Following me is more important than that familial relationship, and and there are constant examples of him reorienting the purpose or the priority of the family in relationship to Jesus. Think about Matthew chapter 10, right? Matthew chapter 10, Jesus says, I did not come to bring peace, but a sword. Son against father, daughter against mother, a man's own enemies will be found in his household. Pretty remarkable statement. And, and I think many of us could probably... Um, verify or validate that statement through our own personal experiences? Right, you find a home that, that houses both a believer and a non-believer, the tension that can be created there, the division, the animosity, the hostility, right? the confusion of why, why one would believe one way and just the, the resentment that can be thrown at each other because of what someone believes and the constant pressure to have to choose Jesus in some respects over family. We see that in a very powerful way overseas. I can't tell you how many times I saw it. I, I could tell you stories of sitting in this hut in Africa, visiting with a man by the name of Hussein, who talked about how his own family threatened to take his own life because he decided to follow Jesus. So it's a very real text. Sometimes following Jesus creates persecution and hostility within this family structure to which we've been given. Right? So you see that, 
reorientation. But then Jesus continues in that teaching in chapter 10, and he says, if anyone loves father and mother or or son and daughter more than me is not worthy of me. Now that's one that we might want to stop and consider for a moment. Because here's the tension that we often feel. We know that family is important, and we know we should invest in it, but if we're not careful, the more we pour into it, family can become an idol. And our whole lives exist around this this pressure to cultivate and to create the perfect family. And we, we fail to see its proper place in our lives. And so we begin to idolize things. We see this a lot with parenting. Uh, I, I for sure see it in my own generation. I sense it within my own heart, right, that we want to do everything for our kids. We want to go before our kids. We want to protect our kids. We make sure our kids are, are well taken care of and all these different things. And so what do we do, right? We, we create this almost Christian bubble to prevent them from the evils of this world. Here's the problem with that. The problem is is that when we truly look at the gospel, more often than not, what we see is that we are called to choose something that surrenders our comfort because we choose sacrifice and risk. But oftentimes what we do for family is pursue comfort and choose preservation and protection. Let me me guard you from the ills of the world. Let me keep you safe from all these different things. And so as a result, children don't see the risk-taking and the sacrifice that is involved in following Jesus. It's got to be more than just going to church together, right? And the minute that we fail to do that because we feel like we need to protect them from these things and we let that happen, what they begin to see is that this whole world revolves around them. And they fail to get the spiritual fortitude to realize what does it mean to follow Jesus in a broken world. And so we need to be a family that pursues the gospel It is one that is willing to surrender comfort and take risks and be a life of sacrifice. So Jesus says it very clearly, if you you love this more than me, you're not worthy of me. So we have to be careful with the idolization of the family as well. So there's this tension in place, but but Jesus gives us this assurance, doesn't he? He says, if you are willing to, to follow me to such an extent, then I can guarantee you, if you if you leave Uh, children, if you leave fathers and mothers and homes and fields, then you will receive a reward that is a hundredfold. So he gives us the assurance of of the internal significance of following him. So we can turn to these passages throughout the Gospel of Matthew and all these different teachings. And in that last category, what I would say is that the consistent message is that the family has to respond to the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the basic message that Jesus brings towards the family. The family has to respond to the lordship of Jesus Christ. When we fail to do that, that's when we see families losing their sense of value. That's when we see the temptation to to walk into all these ills of society. When somebody refuses to have the lordship of Jesus in their life, then they're going to pursue infidelity. They're going to pursue greed. They're going to pursue all these different indulgencies that can lead to the breakdown of their family. But when we refuse to see the lordship of Jesus Christ, it can lead to that idolatry within the family. But the family has to orient itself around the lordship of Jesus Christ. That's the basic teaching that Jesus offers us in terms of family. Now, what I love about that is the picture that he gives us. In all of these teachings and these references to family, there's one particular role, one particular aspect of family that he seems to speak 
very positively of in his children. Right? He says, unless you become like a child, you will not inherit the kingdom of God. I do not hinder these little ones because such is the kingdom as it belongs to such as these. And he constantly speaks to the importance of a child and the the posture of children. And that's the context that we are going to take into these few verses that we're going to look at in the Sermon on the Mount. Right? That he is challenging us to have the lordship of Jesus Christ orient us to what it means for a family, but doing so with a positive view of what it means to be a child pursuing the kingdom. And so with all that being said, let's look very quickly at Matthew 7, 7 through 12. Now, when we have been going through the Sermon on the Mount, chapter 5 is pretty fluid, right? It speaks to the description of the kingdom. It speaks to the fulfillment of the law and the prophets. You look at chapter 6, and it's this overall theme of letting our righteousness be seen by others, and then talking about those areas of righteousness. Chapter 7 is more kind of scattered all over the place. Uh, And he hits on a lot of different topics and a lot of different things. And so much so that we're going to read 7 through 12, but we're really only going to look at 7 through 11. And so beginning there in chapter 7, verse 7, here's what Jesus says. He says, Ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, and you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. For everyone who asks receives. The one who seeks finds. And to the one who knocks, the door will be opened. Which of you, if your son asks for bread, will give him a stone? Or if he asks for a fish, we'll give him a snake. If you then, though you are evil, know how to give good gifts to your children, how much more will your Father in heaven give good gifts to those who ask him? So in everything, do to others what you would have them do to you. For this sums up the law and the prophets. Okay, this this passage is, is obviously really directed towards prayer and seeking, which are constant themes that we see throughout the Sermon on the Mount. A continual focus on the kingdom. But I want to I want to utilize this passage to, again, see how we can extract from it an understanding of how it should shape our identity and our understanding of family. So the opening few lines is, ask, and it will be given to you. Seek, you will find. Knock, and the door will be opened to you. And and he's creating this description of these requests that we can bring to God, but he's doing so through the lens of us seeing God as a father. And so here's how we need to understand this correctly. This does not mean everything you ask for will be given to you. It doesn't mean every time you seek, you're going to find. It's it's something different. And and I think you can observe this very clearly through any sort of parenting relationship. Have you ever noticed how parents have just this really unusual sense of selective hearing? It's, It's really remarkable because... Parents, in particular moms, I would say, have this like innate sense to, to discern the faintest of cries in the other room, right? With a newborn, it's like they can sense the wrong breathing and they're immediately, well, we need to go check on them, something wrong, and they just can hear like the faintest sound. And yet at the same time, they can go have a play date with their friends and have their child like crawling all over them and screaming in their ear and just tune it out, you know, and just be like, yeah, how's your day, you know, and just pretend like the noise is not even there. It's really remarkable the way in which you can do that. And you see, again, when children come to their parents, often asking for all these different things. Can I have this? Can I do this? What about this? And a parent, is, his job is supposed to receive those things, but to respond in a way that is good for the child. Right? And so that's the sort of relationship that, God is, or that Jesus is establishing for us, is, is you can ask with a tremendous assurance that you aren't asking some distant deity 
or some uncaring creator, you are asking a loving father. That does not mean everything you ask for will be given to you. But you can ask it with the assurance that it is heard by a loving father. And that leads us into the description that Jesus paints for us. Right? He says, now, what father is going to give a child stone if he asks for bread? Or if a child asks for fish, he's going to give him a snake. No, though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts to your children. That statement is incredibly significant and incredibly uh, profound. Think about it. Jesus just said, though you are evil. He just affirmed the innate brokenness that all of us carry. Right? And, and, and hopefully you've been uh, familiar enough with the gospel to know our need and our problem of sin. But, but think about that in light of family. Right? We, we are all broken and evil people. Which means we need to be set free from some of the pressures that we put on family. Right? Some of us in here are trying so hard to be the perfect son or daughter. And no matter how hard you try, you never will fit that description. Some of us are seeking so desperately to find the perfect spouse because they will fulfill you and meet some needs. Wrong. All that is is one evil person meeting another evil person. And brokenness happens. Right? The, the pressure to have the perfect family, it, it's not a pursuit of reality. Right? We, we shouldn't put that pressure on ourselves. We should be set free from those expectations and recognize that we are broken. In the same way, many of us sometimes come into this room with a discussion on family bearing some significant wounds and scars from how we've been treated. Those statistics we rattled off earlier are real-life experiences for some of you. And you felt firsthand the pain of a broken family. And part of what we have to surrender today is to recognize, yeah, no family is perfect. Maybe you didn't fit in those statistics, but you still saw problems. You still saw issues. You still saw challenges because we are broken and evil people. We need a Savior. We need redemption. And yet, despite that brokenness, Jesus says, though you are evil, you know how to give good gifts. That's a pretty amazing declaration, right? That despite this inherent brokenness, there is this moral compass within each of us. We, we can still somehow recognize what is right and wrong. There's something that prompts us to an understanding of that which is good. We can look at all these statistics and say, that's not right. It should be better. And we can pursue it. And we strive for it and, and praise God that there are many wonderful examples of families that are able to pursue that goodness in a healthy and wonderful way. And there are families where people are able to experience grace, they're able to experience love and compassion and, and safety and security, and we see all these wonderful things within the family. But what makes this teaching so remarkable is that Jesus follows up that statement and says, though you're evil and you know how to give good gifts, how much more... Does your Father in heaven. So no matter what sort of goodness you can experience in this life from your family, no matter how much grace, how much mercy, how much security, it is that much more that we find in Jesus and through God as our Father. 
We find more grace. We find more mercy. We find more comfort than anything we could ever find in this temporal reality. We find it all through the fatherhood of our God and our Savior. That's where we really begin to see the significance of our identity. And so so Jesus paints us a picture that to me begins to really give us clarity as to how we should understand how our identity begins to shape the brokenness that we often encounter within family. He says, you are a child of God. You have a loving father. And I can't help but wonder how many of us in here today need to be reminded of that truth. We need to set aside our own expectations, the own, our own pressures that we put on ourselves for whatever role we carry. And we need to put aside those scars and those wounds that we've experienced within our own homes. And we need to come back and remember one central identity that is revealed to us through the Lordship of Jesus Christ. We are children of God. That identity changes everything. That's what begins to serve as a vehicle for us to have a positive impact on the relationships around us when we never lose sight of the fact that we are his children. I want to conclude by acknowledging that many of us come into this room today seeking and asking certain things. Oftentimes, things related to relationships that we deem important. Right? We, we ask for that, that special someone. We want to get rid of loneliness. We want to get rid of whatever sort of solitude we're experiencing, and we want that relationship. Some of us are constantly asking God for a child, praying for God to, to create that family dynamic through, through parenthood. Some of us come in here today looking for a greater understanding of who our parents really are. Maybe we've never known who they are. Or maybe we just want more time with mom and dad. Some of us come in here today seeking all of these, these things as it speaks to our family. And what we're really longing for, what we really desire, what's really stirring within our hearts is just something to remind us that we're not alone. Some sort of affirmation that we matter some sort of word that confirms within our hearts that we are loved. Now, if that's what you're asking today, if that's what you're seeking, then may you be overwhelmed by the fact that God has said you are his child. He pulls you in close and he says, you do matter. You are loved. You're my child. And that changes everything. We see in 1 John, it said this way, how great is the Father's love that he has lavished on us that we get to be called children of God. And that's what we are. The most important family we will ever find ourselves within is his. No matter, no matter our wounds, no matter our scars, that is where our identity starts. And so hear that truth today. More than you are a spouse, more than being a son or a daughter or a brother or a sister, more than, than being the perfect husband or the perfect wife, more than, more than any of those familial relationships that we can define, we get to come in here today and celebrate and sing of the truth that we are not alone, we are not abandoned, we are not forgotten. We are children of the living God. And we forever stay within his family, with his love, 
and with his comfort. And so let that truth change us as we pursue him in all that we are. Let's pray. Father in heaven, we are overwhelmed by the reality that you look in on us and despite our failures, despite our brokenness, despite our shame, you love us and you hold us close and you, you draw us near and you remind us of just how much we are loved by you. And I pray that for everyone in this room today, we can all be stirred and reminded of what it means to be known as your children. Father, I pray for the family relationships that exist in this room. I acknowledge that many of us come in here today with a certain level of brokenness within our homes. And I pray that in the quietness of this moment, many of us could just surrender those challenges, surrender that, that tension, the conflict, the pressure that we feel. And that those realities can be redefined and reshaped by the assurance that we belong to you first and foremost. That our families would be able to be stirred by the fact that we are defined by the Lordship of Jesus Christ before our own endeavors and our own pursuits. And so where families are broken, Father, heal them. We are desperate. Meet us in our deepest needs. Father, I think about so many that are running to, to homelessness or to drugs. So many that are contemplating terrible acts because they just didn't have that security, Father, for the ills of the society around us. Speak truth into them and let them know they're loved by you. Help us be your voice to these people. Help us hear that voice within our own lives. That we can be stirred and moved by the fact that we're your children. And that never changes. Father, we're undeserving. And we love you. And we're grateful. And it's to your praise and to your glory that we pray these things. Amen.